Hello and welcome to International History Now, a podcast series based at the LSE's Department of International History, discussing historical events from a contemporary perspective. We are your hosts, Yorgos Yanakopoulos and Dina Gusenova. The 25th of March, 1821, is celebrated annually in Greece as Greek Independence Day, a day marking the birth of what some have seen as the first nation-state in Europe after post-revolutionary France. A series of localized revolts against Ottoman rule gave rise to a broad revolutionary wave that swept parts of the country. By the end of the 1820s, interventions by different European powers and the rise of Philhellenic sentiment secured the state's autonomous existence from the Ottomans. This came at the price of greater dependence upon the so-called great powers, Britain, France, and Russia. As Greece prepares to celebrate the bicentennial of the events of 1821, we want to examine the dimensions of Greek independence and dependence from different angles. Was the war of independence a standalone event or part of a transnational process of revolutionary activity? How did the heterogeneous populations, namely Jews, Muslims, within what became the Greek nation-state experience the revolution and its aftermath? What kinds of sovereignty did Greece gain and how did its place in the world change over time? And finally, how is the revolution remembered in Greece today? And with us to discuss the legacies of the Greek revolution and Greece's journey in modern international history are Mark Mazaur. Mark is the Ira D. Wallach Professor of History at Columbia University and also the founding director of the new Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination. Katie Fleming. Katie is the Alexander Onassis Professor of Hellenic Culture and Civilization in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences of New York University. And she has also served for many years as the Associate Director and then Director of the Remark Institute. But at the moment, she is the Provost of New York University. And uh, Effie Ghazi, who is Professor of History at the University of the Peloponnese and a member of the editorial board of the journal Historine, dealing with uh, reflections on historiography and public engagement in the Greek context. Mark, I know you are currently completing a book on the Greek War of Independence, and perhaps it's fair to say that this constitutes a kind of return for you to Greek history after your Uh, major books on Salonika from 2004 and uh, earlier Inside Hitler's Greece. And between these these books came a number of influential books on broader European and global history. The work that I had been doing in the past few years was about the uh, emergence of structures of international governance in the world and uh, also about what it means to live in a world of international governance that is where the nation state is still the normative political unit. And I think that that work, together with the crisis in Greece over the last 10 years, which raised very profound questions of what sovereignty means today, took me back. I wanted to go back to the time when the Greeks were fighting for sovereignty um, because I thought it would be interesting to look at what they hoped to gain by it and what was in their minds in 1821 as a way of gauging where we are today. Uh, actually, I had a bit of a quarrel with my publisher. The publisher uh, wanted to call the book The Greek War of Independence. And I said, well, 
do you realize that on the whole in Greece, nobody really refers to the Greek War of Independence. They refer to the Greek Revolution, the Eleniki Epanastasi, and I think for a very good reason, or several very good reasons, which maybe get to the heart of your question. Tell us a bit about the events themselves. Was it an Ottoman Revolution or a Greek War of Independence? Whose War of Independence was it actually? The question of what sort of event this was, uh, was it a revolution? Was it a war? Um, was it a rebellion? It was in people's minds at the very, very start, especially in the territory concerned. And uh, different people gave different answers. Um, to talk about a war suggests that this was a conflict between two similar sides, uh, admittedly un unequal in strength, um, but that had re relatively regularly composed fighting units. This absolutely wasn't anything of the case. The Ottoman, Ottoman Empire had an army and it had a navy and it had a tax system and it had a bureaucracy and the Greeks had none of those things. Even though they very quickly started calling what they had an army or perhaps earlier a navy, really there wasn't an army and there wasn't a navy. Um, revolution, on the other hand, I think you can make a pretty good argument for saying that what happened was a revolution Because if you look at it, um, you started out with one kind of society, uh, the society of the Ottoman provinces of the southern Balkans, uh, that was ruled along the lines familiar to us from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was pre-capitalist. It was uh, pre-political. Uh, it was ruled on the basis primarily of confession. Uh, it had minimal private property rights, and yet you come out at the other side with a highly politicized society that has print media and the press for the first time, where power is uh, exercised in the name of the people, where capitalism spreads very fast and so on. So it was a revolution, I think. However, we shouldn't be too comfortable, I think, with the language of revolution This was very a language that was um, the language of the uh, conspirators in the Filikieteria, the friendly society that is such an important part of the early story, the organization that's founded in Odessa in 1814 that grows very fast. It's one of a number of these secret societies that sprang up across Europe after the fall of Napoleon. And it's far and away the most successful um, because although, in fact, the rollout of the revolution did not exactly go according to plan, we can talk about that, the Eteria's hand was all over it. The guys in the Eteria tended to be quite literate, and they were very conscious of Enlightenment, European political theory, and they were comfortable with the language of revolution. But it always struck me that most of the peasants who end up doing most of the fighting in the Morea and Rumeli were not cognizant of the language of revolution. And on the whole, it didn't mean very much to them. And I still think that that's the case. It came to mean something to them by the end. And I think that the clue to understanding the spread of the fighting and the spread of the revolution in the early weeks and months is to be found in a little handwritten news sheet that was circulating in the hills above Galaxidi in the spring of 1821. There was an interesting article 
in a 19th century Greek um, newspaper, Pandora, about the first Greek newspapers, in which the antiquarian who wrote it explained that before the first printed Greek newspapers that we know about, that were printed during the war itself, there had in fact circulated handwritten news bills that summarized often fake news that the Eteria and others wanted to spread around the countryside to get people whipped up. And he gives the text of one of these very, very rare documents in which he, he, the text talks about how the kings of Europe have decided to embark on to, to Romeico. They're going to make the Romeico. And we could talk in more detail, if you like, later on about what this meant. But this was essentially a kind of millenarian vision of a triumph of Christianity uh, that was, I think, very much part of the world of the peasantry of the Peloponnese and of Rumeli, uh, and that what they thought was happening was not a war of independence and it wasn't a revolution, but they thought in the spring of 1821 that they were making the Romeo. Thank you, Mark. I'd like to bring in Katie. Katie, you've authored multiple studies on modern Greek history. You've authored the prize-winning book uh, on, on Ali Pasha's Greece, uh, the Ottoman governor of northern maiden Greece. And I would like to get your views on, on the disparity of the meanings and of the terms of, of what was it that happened in Greece, and, and also how did the local actors perceive what was going on? Thanks very much. Uh, I'd like to pick up in responding to that on some really important things that Mark has said about um, the diversity of terminology that can be used to describe this event, whether it's a revolution or a war or an uprising. Um, because where you really see confusion around this, as Mark has said, is on the part of the actual actors as opposed to the theorizers of the events. And I want to start out really where Mark ended by talking about a very strong millenarian strand um, amongst the particularly early actors in this uh, who really saw the events in apocalyptic and fundamentally Christian terms, uh, which is not dissimilar to the ways in which, in fact, 1492, um, uh, another bookend was seen by many of the actors at the time in apocalyptic and millenarian terms. And I want to flag in particular uh, the date that we uh, traditionally talk about as having been uh, the, the moment of inception, March 25th which of course has tremendous religious significance as the day of the Annunciation. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the way the Christian calendar works, the day of the Annunciation marks the moment when uh, an angel notifies of the pregnancy of Jesus's mother and lets it be known that a child is gonna be born, which hey presto happens. Uh, precisely nine months to the day later, um, on December 25th. Uh, so March 25th is a very, very significant religious date. And I think the fact that it is chosen, because it really is chosen to be the day of inception of these events, tells us a lot about what was in the minds of 
the actors themselves. They really saw this as a kind of enunciation of the impending arrival or uh, new arrival rebirth of a a Christian moment, a Christian era. I'm not going to call it a Christian polity because, um, as uh, Mark has pointed out, that sort of thought, while it evolved pretty quickly, wasn't in place at the very beginning of events. So for actors who were engaged on the ground in the early stages of this, I think first and foremost, they felt that they were engaged in an act of sort of Christian restitution, um, regeneration, and rebirth. And uh, I, I would like very much if we could return to this idea of the Romeico um, in that context. But of course, there were lots of other actors on the ground as well. You have uh, mentioned Ali Pasha. We have lots of local actors. Um, and I don't even want to say they're from all different sides because there aren't really sides, but they represent Uh, many different backgrounds. If you read the memoirs of any of the fighters in the the revolution, you'll see that they are constantly forging alliances with what from today's perspective would look like unlikely parties. What do I mean by that? You have Muslims allying with Greek Orthodox Christians. You have Turks allying at different times with Greeks and also with uh, Western Europeans. So there is a lot going on on the ground that makes this story a far more complicated one uh, than it, of course, has now, uh, you know, 200 years later, been processed into being. And uh, I think some of the most interesting things that can be said in this conversation perhaps have to do with that very, very complicated landscape at the outset and also with the story of how it is that a complicated story turned into a much more simplified and flattened out one. And the final thing I want to say um, also connects to this business of calling it a a revolution rather than a war. Um, I think this is also very much borne out by its ongoing nature. If we look at the 19th century writ large in Greece, you see that the revolution that begins perhaps in 1821 is in many ways ongoing. Um, You know, 1864, 1881, 1913, uh, this idea that there is a Christian or a Greek Christian restitution that needs to take place, um, like all good revolutions, the revolution doesn't just happen and stop. It's ongoing in the Greek instance as well. Can I just um, ask you all a slightly naive question from the point of view of a sort of outsider to Greek historiography um, to give you a sort of caricatured idea of these events? And I mean, there are these figures that crop up, but it's very difficult to connect them. I mean, they are the sort of, yeah, the Epsilanti brothers. Then there are these women that are commemorated, like Bubulina, and they also seem to have Russian connections. Um, then you get sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, again, caricaturing the sort of international mind. <laughs> um, then you get the, the Phil Hellenes and like Lord Byron somehow linked to this. Um, and then in the end, you get these sort of great power declarations about imposing um, German kings, essentially, on, on Greece. So, so um, what would you say to someone who has this sort of very 
fragmented impressionistic knowledge. And then, of course, there are this sort of Delacroix massacre of heroes sort of paintings. What sort of um, understanding of agency, I guess, um, does does someone need who has this kind of fragmented uh, understanding of the of these events? So uh, you've mentioned some of these agents, obviously, um, from the Russian side, but 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 there are these connections. Uh, there are these figures that cross these different roles. There are Greek subjects, and then they serve Russia. Then there's British interest and ways of achieving it through naval blockades or naval interference. Um, then there's the sort of international public opinion, but what role does it actually play? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there as a kind of naive plea for help, let's say. Uh, I think one way, if I might jump in to answer your question, is to say that this is a very difficult story to tell because it's fragmented. There is no single hero that goes through from beginning to end or anywhere close. In fact, it has no clear ending has a reasonably clear beginning. Uh, It's a very complicated story, and that's one of the characteristics of it. Then one can go into the details of the things you ask about. But understanding just how fragmented, how complicated it is, uh, is really important. And by the way, that's evident to people at the time as well. Somebody says at one point, you know, this is a struggle in which there is no Washington. There is no Napoleon. There is no single person who can bring this fighting to an end. Uh, So they're very conscious of this. Effie Ghazi, you have written extensively on uh, the importance of and the evolution of ideological slogans um, in in Greek society. And I know that you've just published in Greek a monograph titled Unknown Land, Greece and the West in the Early 20th Century. It is a very complicated um, case and perhaps we should take this seriously into account. I would say that the Greek Revolution is a network, or at least perhaps many networks, but, and, but it is also a process in situ, in a specific site that includes the, um, the Peloponnese, Rumeli, eastern, uh, the parts of the um, uh, eastern um, uh, central Greece, uh, the Peloponnese and the islands. So if you look at it through this um, lens, this perspective, uh, then you can see the network perhaps um, through the different, uh, um, uh, after 1814, through the different players and moves of the Philikiateria. In this um, context, the Philikiateria is very interesting and very uh, complex. Not only it mobilizes uh, many, many, many people. It also, I think, it also provides um, the terminology, the perspectives, the um, um, the, the visions of liberty, freedom, and revolution that are part and parcel of many revolutionary um, uh, groups and movements uh, in in uh, at the time, um, including the Carbonari. Um, so it provides the, the, the imagery, the, the, the symbols, uh, the oaths, the ties, the hopes, this form of secrecy, the, even the passion for, for this that, that comes with the conspirational revolutionary mind. Now, if you go, if you go to the Peloponnese, uh, to uh, Rumeli and the islands, you, you also have to take into account um, uh, that the revolution is a re- redistribution of power. 
and in 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 that um, in that in this sense, it, it definitely involves, the, uh, or at least it is also a redistribution of power, uh, and not just um, um, a war of, uh, for independence. So you have to take uh, into account uh, the involvement of the notables. But not just the notables, it's, it's also the, the politicians, the fighters, the islanders, people who come from the islands. Um, so this is a, a very, very complex process that brings together um, various voices and various political languages. Katie Fleming. I would uh, pick up on the complexity that uh, Effie referred to earlier in response to this question of, you know, wh- what do we make of all of these uh, many different players and simply say that it's possible to have more than one story be correct. Is this the moment of a form of Orientalism and that is fueled by and evidenced in such figures as Delacroix? Of course. Absolutely. But at the same time, there are people on the ground engaging in a very, very different way with this. And at the same time, you have um, the Philhellenes. And so often when people start talking about particularly the external players, it creates a sort of binary narrative, right? Either, quote, the Greeks won their revolution or quote, the Philhellenes won it for them. And I don't think that only one of those stories is the correct one or needs to be the correct one. And I would add to that, um, you know, to an extent, it's sort of he who gets the uh, last word gets the best word. You know, the closest we have to someone who lives through and then beyond these events is Macriyanis. Um, who, it seems to me, very consciously uh, writes about them in the way that he wants them to be remembered, rather than uh, writing about them necessarily as they actually were. And one of the things that's often forgotten, uh, because there is this tremendous emphasis on the foundations of the Greek state and its institutions and its text and its proclamations. And we have, however many it is, 17 or 22 volumes of that are published successively by the parliament over the years. One of the things that's forgotten is that it's, it's, it's about the fourth constitution to have been formed since the revolution started. Uh, and the three, re- the three main regional assemblies that have all met have all founded their own constitutional documents and the most important of these is the Peloponnesian Senate. And the Peloponnesian Senate is not inclined to give very much power at all to the new provisional administration. In fact, the provisional administration has no fiscal power over the Peloponnese in 1822 at all. And the architects of this particular complicated arrangement are the notables of the Peloponnese. The older view, which saw this as a bringing together a a kind of laboratory in which traditional elements and modern elements are woven together, I think these are very simple terms. But Western, a kind of Western political theory that's second nature to many young educated Greeks, uh, an older language of popular orthodoxy, 
and then a pretty sophisticated local political language of the Ottoman Morea and its notables that, and, that, and, and of the Ottoman islands. All of these th- three things come together, I think. Efigazi. So um, if you look, for instance, at the ways the, the first constitution, the Prosorino Politvma in Epidavros in 1822, defines or addresses the political and uh, wider revolutionary realities, you can actually see these overlapping terminologies and varieties, which do not end up in a chaotic reality, but rather to a more diverse way of uh, conceptualizing an already complex political situation. It says that it is constituted in the name of the Holy Triad. So there is a religious element, but also it addresses the Hellenic ethnos, the Hellenic nation. So you have a modern term or a modern terminology and the more the modern perspective on the nation, the ethnos, coming together with the religious element. This is an interesting combination that is complemented by the term politikin iparxin ke anexartisia, the independence and the political existence. You have a very interesting combination of very diverse, a variety of concepts and conceptualizations that actually describe a very complex process rather than a a fact in itself. And the Greek Revolution is actually a kind of a laboratory where all these different um, perspectives might actually come together in a process of negotiation. Mark, if we were to dissect this laboratory in wherever we left it, what, what would be the main components So I think Effie makes a very good point. And I think one of the interesting developments in the historiography on the restoration in general after 1815 is that we can see that the role of Christianity in various forms is much more important than we had understood. That the Congress of Vienna and the Holy Alliance are themselves blending Christian rhetoric and a more enlightenment discourse. And I think the same is true, as Effie says, about the Greeks. What is interesting about a a moment like the moment at Epidavros, where they are meeting and forming the provisional, let's call it the first constitution, is that you see a coming together of some different strands. So uh, the, the excitement for me of these handwritten newspapers from Galaxidi is that they give you a, a pretty unpoliticized view through the Romeico. It's about kings. It, it's about the virgin. It, it, it's about millennial comings, about the wiping out of the sultan. And that language, when it comes to Epidavros, meets these figures who who may themselves come from similar backgrounds, but who've been schooled in this very different language of political theory and who are present at Epidavros 
who are discussing uh, um, constitutions, who have a handbook of constitutions of the world to guide them, uh, who are familiar with the idea of the separation of power. So there are these young revolutionary intellectuals, many of them, I think, coming with and through the Eteria in the entourage of Dimitris Ypsilantis or others of them in the entourage of Mavrogordatus. And then you have the notables of the Peloponnese, and to a certain extent, the notables of Spetsian and Idra as well, who, who represent a slightly different group again, uh, in that they are much more educated than the average villager in the hills above Galaxidi. Uh, and they, they've often had quite a serious education of their own, but they're far more immersed in the world of Ottoman society and Ottoman politics uh, than anyone else is. And, uh, and their concern is really neither with religious apocalypse uh, nor with the founding of some secure constitution. I mean, without being too cynical about it, their, their concern seems to me very clearly to use institutions to preserve their power. Thanks, Mark. Could I just bring in Katie uh, there and kind of ask you to retrace our steps back to your uh, discussion, a bit of the the geography in a way of the um, where it takes place, but also the, the link to this millenarian kind of element. Um, and what does it mean for the, the non-Christian population, actually, of, the, of this region? So how do they view the revolution, therefore, and what happens to them in the course of these events? Just as Mark has described there being a large constituency that is looking to find ways during the course of these events to consolidate their power, to hang on to their power, um, when it comes to certain populations, um, non-Christian populations, they're trying at the very low end of the scale to do a version of the same thing, mainly just to save themselves. If you have a landscape that is revolutionary, and over the course of the unfolding of the revolution, even if there aren't clear warring sides at the outset, uh, over time there are clearly warring sides, and you don't naturally seem to be affiliated with either one of them, that's not a very good thing for you at all. And one of the really astonishing things about the very early phases of the Epanastasi is just how indiscriminately violent it is in terms of different groups of people setting upon one another with tremendous ferocity. And you have the complete annihilation of, for instance, small Jewish populations scattered throughout the uh, Peloponnese. You have uh, large-scale slaughter of Muslims, And if you don't see yourself as having any future whatsoever in the event of a successful outcome of this event, although I don't know that people knew exactly what they had in mind when they thought of a successful outcome, your main goal was to uh, get out of there as quickly uh, as you could. And we see very rapidly in the early phases of the revolution, the pretty much complete disappearance of any Jewish presence whatsoever in, uh, for instance, the, the Peloponnese. Now, I don't think that this is being driven by the framing of these events as religious or millenarian, so much as it is part and 
parcel of this sort of rabidly, I'm going to call it fundamentalist Christian approach to the events. Although I do have to say that, you know, when we in the here and now think about what it means to be devoutly Christian, I think we we have a very, very dim perception of what it actually meant for people 200 years ago to be motivated primarily by Christian belief. But it is a fervor and it is a bloody fervor. And that created a very, very dangerous environment for many people. Efigazi. Religion is an important factor in the case of the Greek um, uh, revolution. Uh, it is important if you want for internal reasons. I mean, for those who became engaged in the war, in the revolution, but also in the rhetoric of the um, Greek War of Independence, it is a war of Christians against Muslims. And being a Christian is important in all forms of the textual uh, aspects of of the uh, revolution, including the uh, constitutions themselves. Also, I think it is important for external reasons. It's part of the political terminology that addresses great powers, the Philippines, uh, the European audiences, the post-revolutionary European frame. So within the frame of both revolutionary realities, but also revolutionary rhetorics, the issue of uh, religion is, is very, very important. Now, a, a war is a very <laughs> violent reality anyway. And uh, it has to be said that it, it addresses mostly those who were not involved in the war as they were not engaged, they were not, um, uh, they didn't belong in any of the groups who be- which became engaged. Uh, the the, the non-Christians, uh, in, in, uh, especially in the uh, Peloponnese, including the, the, the Jewish communities, the Jewish population. It seems that even... The fighters themselves were aware of this issue of violence, or at least they became aware in the process of the revolution. Perhaps you come across um, Fotakos, his memoirs, which of course were published much later, and it gives a different impression. It gives the frame of um, the period after the, uh, the revolution, when the Greek state was actually uh, formed, where he makes actually explicit remarks about the rise of violence throughout the war. And he actually even makes excuses. He comes up with an an argument that um, the Greeks were not actually um, uh, extremely violent only, but they had to become only when they were um, um, challenged and um, if in what concerns, as he claims, Tuskalus uh, Turkos, the good Turks, uh, they didn't actually um, uh, go uh, against them. Uh, so it seems that violence was an issue, and it was, and it became a political issue as well, because it affected the image of the the, the revolution uh, to Western eyes. Thanks, Effie. So far, we have been discussing the question of religion, violence, 
and the different political languages of the Greek revolutionary process. Let me turn now to some of the protagonists of this revolutionary moment, namely the secret society Philiki Eteria, Society of Friends, which is a society that comes together in 1814 in Odessa with an aim to overthrow Ottoman rule in Greece and the diplomat John Kapodistrias, Ioannis Kapodistrias, who is, among other things, the Secretary of State for the Russian Empire and subsequently becomes the first governor of independent Greece. I'm very curious in all of this about how we should understand a figure such as John Kapodistrias, who is the consummate political theorist who, upon actually becoming someone with boots on the ground, seems to take a very, very different view of things. And I just want to know what the others think of his role in all of this and whether, uh, I guess, somewhat heretically, what I'm really asking is whether he really should be regarded as a national hero. And I'm also very curious about uh, the Filikieteria and the extent to which we should see it as a cause or a symptom of what's going on. Roddy Beaton, in his recent book, is pretty clear that he thinks it's symptomatic. But Mark, I was very interested to hear you emphasizing the real centrality of it to the events themselves. There are sort of two phases of Capodistrius's life that might concern us, separated by brief interval. One is the period in which he's Russian foreign minister, and the other is the period in which he comes to Greece as the first president. Um, the period in which he's Russian foreign minister, uh, all of these things are, of course, shrouded in controversy um, and debate. But I can only give my own view of this. Um, he, he believes, as many others do, um, that Ypsilantis's leadership of the Etiria and his resolve to immediately embark upon action is a terrible mistake. And he keeps uh, close watch on the Etiria. His own brothers are in the Etiria. His closest aide, Candiotis, is in the Etiria. But he, of course, refuses to become the leader. And I... Uh, cannot believe that he thought that Alexandros Ypsilantis was a, a good choice for the leader, um, impetuous, no real political sense at all. Um, and so he has deep misgivings. He's shocked when he learns of the crossing into Moldavia in February 1821 by Alexandros Ypsilantis. He is obliged to write the denunciation of the Eteria by the Tsar and so on. Uh, nothing in that should surprise us, I think, and it was uh, all compatible with his devotion to what he regarded as the Greek cause. He, this was very characteristic of many of the notable figures in the Greek diaspora at that time. They all felt similarly, I think. A lot of them felt similarly. Because of the uprising, uh, he eventually loses his position, and he goes into a kind of semi-retirement, semi-exile, uh, from which he returns in 1827 when the Greeks ask him to become president. And then uh, um, he arrives in Greece uh, in 1828 
and he rules the country for three years, which, which appear today to be highly controversial because he insists that the precondition for doing this is that the 1827 constitution be suspended. Um, I have to say I find a lot of this discussion in Greece today very anachronistic. Uh, there's no question that um, Kapodistrios wants to rule in a relatively unfettered way, that he doesn't think the 1827 constitution uh, is appropriate for the situation the country faces. And uh, I, arguably, if you read it carefully, he's right. Um, you could have had a democratic uh, uh, um, liberal constitution or you could have had a government, but hard to see how you could have had both. And until that point, Greece hadn't had a government. Um, so he remains a controversial figure in that second phase until, of course, he's tragically assassinated uh, in 1831. The Filiki is the is, as we've said, the organization that is at the heart of the early planning. And um, I have to say that much about the Eteria uh, remains shrouded in mystery, to me at least. Um, and I suppose that's not surprising if you're talking about a secretive organization. Uh, there were internal conflicts, there were internal tensions, some of which we know about. There were, in, there were assassinations and liquidations uh, that we know about. Um, but... I went into my research in 1821 um, expecting to debunk a conspiracy theory and expecting to find that the Filiqueteria was not really as important as it had been made out to be. Uh, and to my uh, surprise, uh, I found the opposite. Uh, I, I, I came to the conclusion that the Eteria was enormously important. Um, it wasn't important because its plans came to fruition uh, in the way that it expected. I think Alexandros Ypsilantis uh, was a hopeless figure and made a huge number of mistakes, and other leading Eterists like Papa Flesas were impetuous and impatient. But it was their very impetuosity that propelled the situation into revolution against the wishes of many other people. And equally importantly, there was a whole cadre. There were dozens of really motivated, pretty smart young men, eterist agents, who had fanned out across much of the Greek world and who provided this astonishing cross-national network that mobilized, that provided counsel, that drafted proclamations, uh, and they pushed the Greeks into the uprising. Uh, some of them very deliberately pushed parts of the country that didn't want to get involved into the uprising. Um, and so I think that uh, they were absolutely central uh, in understanding how the thing took off in the way it did. The Greek Revolution has been remembered in Greece in different ways, and references to the Greek Revolution uh, occurred, and uh, not only in Greece but also, you know, within the wider European uh, public sphere, uh, in the context even of the recent economic crisis in Greece. And this brings in a story or uh, gestures towards a story of sovereignty and a story of, of uh, you know, a, a small state, as it were. 
that achieves some degree of independence. It's a question to what extent sovereignty plays out in Greece across the 19th and 20th century. So uh, I'd like to ask if you have any thoughts on on the on that dimension on on Greece's role and place in the international system after the revolution. Well, it's Leonard Wolf, as you know, you're writing in 1916 and thinking about something like the League of Nations and international government who uh, cast his mind back to the diplomatic activity around the Greek question in the 1820s as the beginning of a new practice of international cooperation. So I think that this is a very important, larger dimension of the revolution. Um, what What the uprising does by by lasting, because nobody expected it to last more than a few months, by lasting is it, it obli- eventually obliges the great powers of Europe to change the rules of the game and to intervene, uh, not to put down a revolution, but to support it. Uh, for that to happen, uh, public opinion in Europe has to mobilize over a period of years, which of course it does. Byron's part of that, Delacroix's part of that, the Philhellene volunteers of 1821 to 22 are part of that, and the, and the three navies sailing into the Mediterranean in 1827 are part of that as well. So I think that, that there's no question of the larger international significance that is then going to reverberate. And as we know from, from recent scholarly work, it's going to reverberate in the minds of other revolutionaries, Italians, Hungarians and Poles uh, in the years to come as well. So my impression so far is that we can talk about the Greek revolution or the war of independence in political terms, in terms of this international system that gets transformed in its course, and also in in terms of a kind of social history of the populations um, experiencing these events uh, in a way. And these two are not necessarily kind of the same, don't necessarily have the same geographies and don't necessarily have the same uh, you know, questions, even big questions to, to be asked. Um, and in this slide, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on the kind of the opportunities for historians to engage in public debate about um, about these questions, but also maybe the, the pitfalls. I mean, what should be, wh- where do you see the kind of the possibility for creative engagement for a historian? Because often historians just come in and say, oh, it's all much more complicated and this is presented as a, as a positive thing, but actually there are all these negative things. But beyond that, um, I'd say a couple of things. I think you're completely right, Dina, that it's all too easy to see an understandable, really, if hi- historians see themselves as myth busters, because there are so many myths. There are so many myths of 1821. But it's a missed opportunity if that's all you do, I think. And not only a missed opportunity, but it's... Um, I think it's incumbent on you if you're going to be offer people an engagement with the past, not just to tell them, you know, the ways in which they're wrong in thinking about the past, but to suggest other ways that that that, that are an improvement. And um, I think it must be said that in the case of this particular subject, there's been a very striking, um, very exciting flourishing of historical scholarship in Greece in the last 20 years. You know, the result of the Colonel's Junta in 67-74 was everybody got sick and tired of 1821. It was an unfortunate coincidence that the 150th anniversary took place in the middle of the Junta. 
And so for 10, 20, 25 years after the junta fell, historians had a kind of aversion, most historians did, uh, to 1821. Well, this has gone completely gone in the last 10 or 15 years. I, I think more really interesting work has been produced on 1821 than at any time in the past. The huge, huge subject of the Ottoman view of 1821, to take the most obvious example. Um, so there's lots of ways in which historians are going to be able to offer new views, fresh views of the past. And that's something that I hope that they do. I think Mark's right. Uh, because of the um, uh, colonel's uh, dictatorship, the people actually, not just historians, but perhaps um, uh, everyone in Greece became sick and tired of the Greek revolution and this kind of kitsch surrounding kitsch nationalism, banal nationalism surrounding the revolution. But it is true, it is absolutely true that uh, um, after uh, the, the fall of the uh, dictatorship, there was um, a flourishing historical um, uh, literature and um, lots of research that um, um, has been very, very fruitful. Uh, to me, this is um, a, a new opportunity. The bicentenary is a, is a new opportunity. If you ask me, I don't really have a very specific point of view, but uh, what, I, what I find absolutely exciting, even fascinating, is that in, in history, it is perhaps very important, it might be very interesting to look at the transformative power of, of liminal events, of the ways people become um, radically transformed through this historical experience of the, of the revolution. Well, just as it is an entanglement to discover that things are more complicated than one thought, it's also a form of kind of liberation to discover that things are more complicated than one thought, um, particularly if you're trying to think about, say, Greece's present and its future. And one of the things that I have been impressed with amongst some that I have not been so impressed with about the approach to the celebration of the bicentennial of the outbreak of the revolution is that it very explicitly also includes forward-looking components. It isn't simply interested in talking about uh, what happened two years, two hundred years ago, but also in talking about you know what is Greece going to look like in twenty years or in in forty years. And I think that uh, historians certainly aren't prognosticators of the future, but I do think that by, um, you know, I hate to use the phrase complicating narratives, but by, by, by pointing out that things um, are complicated, uh, if they can do that in a non-complicated way, also, I think, um, helps people think through difficulties that they're having now or, or think in more meaningful ways about the directions uh, that, that they hope to take things. Yes, thank you very much. There's so much more that needs to be said or we need to explore. Um, I think you've really highlighted the possibility to craft and also actually the need to, to maintain multiple narratives of this complex event for various reasons. Now we would like to thank Katie Fleming, Mark Mazawa and Effie Ghazi for joining us. And thank you for listening to another episode of International History Now.